God has afforded me many years and opportunities for education in my past, and um, as a young man, I would not have looked forward to that and been thankful, but as, a, as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate education. I would have to say, though, that of all I've done and the schooling that I've had, probably the most educational thing in my life has been being a parent. And so I wanted to just share a few things that I've learned over the years as far as uh, raising children and uh, things that they've taught me that I didn't know before I had kids. The first thing that I learned is that you should never, ever let your kids eat as many Oreos as they can on an empty stomach. Sydney taught us that lesson well. We'll move on past there. The next thing I learned is that time change is all well and good, right, for most people. You get an hour extra sleep. For a parent, all time change means is that you get to get up an hour earlier than everybody else in the nation, right? Because your kids have no idea. Time changes and they come down an hour earlier instead of an hour later, right? The next thing I've learned is that, and this is something that just floored me, that I could not grasp, and I don't think you can grasp until you have children, is that it is possible to sacrificially love someone that you held for the first time, you met for the first time, you saw for the first time five minutes earlier. You, you know that, right? You've never met this individual, and you hold that child in your arms, and just instantly there is nothing you would not do for that child. The depth of love so quickly. I also learned that creativity plus markers plus a bare wall is a combination for graffiti art in your home, right? Our kids hit that a few times, and Steph learned how to clean, and we painted, and we've had all kinds of decorations. But in relation to our sermon this morning, here's what I've learned as a parent. As a a parent, I've learned that my definition of good and what my kids' definition of good often differ. They They don't always understand what's best, and there are times where we understand and we have a better, a better understanding and grasp of what's best for them. I actually asked Avery's permission of this before I uh, share this so she would be okay with it. But Avery got her tonsils out a few months ago. And when we took her to the, the pre-op appointment and everything, we went. one of the things that they had to do is they had to take blood. And, and so I, the whole time, of course, as her dad, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, how's she going to do? And I didn't, we didn't say anything to her about it, that they had to take blood and do a little blood sample and stuff. But uh, we got through, and they sent us down to the labs, and Avery's like, what am I doing? And I said, well, you, you gotta, they got to get a little blood. And her eyes kind of looked at me. And then for the first time, you know, up until then, it was all ice cream and missing school and good stuff, right? Then all of a sudden, it was like, what? They're, they're doing what? Said, it's not a big deal. And, of course, you walk in, and there's adults that are, you know, some of you in here, right, get panicked over needles. And uh, there's some adults in there looking around. They're probably not calming her down, you know. And uh, she comes in, and the, the lady's super nice and sits down and is getting ready. And, of course, Avery, you can see her mind just churning, seeing every little thing. And she looks up at me, and I, I said, it's okay. It's all right. And she, I saw her. She kind of got scared, didn't you? And she's kind of looking. And I, I just put my arm around her and held her. And I said, honey, Dad's right here, and it's all right. It's going to hurt a little bit, but you'll be fine. And so she, you know, she did this thing, and uh, they did their business, and we're gone. Two days later, or maybe the next, I don't remember, we were sitting in pre-op, and everything's fine, but then the realization, right, 
comes over Avery that, wait a minute, they're asking all these questions, and they're poking me, and, and they're talking about what I want an IV, and where I want all this stuff. And, and again, she has that realization, that this is kind of scary. I don't know about this. But in that moment, what did we do as parents? We didn't say, well, all right, let's go home. Right? We said, it's okay. We're here. And we hugged her and we prayed with her, asked God to strengthen her, give her courage. And we sat with her through it all. And we said, you know what? We've been here. Dad's had his tonsils out. Sydney had her tonsils out. We've been here. It's good. It's a good thing for you. And so Avery went through it, and it, it made a difference. The times that she kind of got teary-eyed and scared to look up and to know what? That mom and dad are there. They're with her. And we know we love her, right? We love her. She knows that we love her. And so for mom and dad to look and say, it's okay, honey, it's going to be fine, it gave her the courage to press on and to go through with it, right? We, we see that and we understand that as parents. And today we come back to Romans 8, 28, and, and you can go ahead and flip there if you want, but as we come back to Romans 8, 28, that, the aspect of it that we're going to look at this morning is the, the truth that God works all things according to his purpose to the good of those who love him and are called by him. Okay? He works for the good of those who are his. And so we want to look at that this morning, and we want to think about the fact that, honestly, we're all like children. There are times that, that we look up, and we kind of look up, and we go, I don't know, God, and we're scared, or we're nervous, we don't understand, or we think it would be great to go here and do that, and God says, no. That's not what is good. I know what's good. I know what's best. I know what you need to do, and so I want you to go here. And he's going to move us in that direction. And so we're all like children. We don't have a full grasp, a full understanding of what is best for us. But fortunately, those who are his, if you're in here, you're a believer this morning. You have the certainty, the promise that you serve the Father who is holy and just and righteous and true and good, and he knows exactly what is best for you. He knows exactly what you need. He knows what needs to happen for your ultimate good. We, we know that. We have the promise of Romans 8, 28. But what's the problem, right? What's the problem that we struggle with in that? Is that when, when things come into our lives, we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, aren't we? We're, we're tempted to doubt whether he really knows what's going on. It doesn't matter how many theological books you've read, it doesn't matter how many times you've been to church, that's the temptation that comes, is, is to doubt God's goodness, his plan, his authority, his ability to work the current situation out in our life for our good. That's just the temptation. And so we start to doubt, we start to, to struggle with, God, how can, you, how can you work good out of me losing my job? I was the breadwinner for my family. We had everything we needed. You were providing for us, and now all of a sudden, I don't have a job. I don't know how that can work for my good. I, I don't know, God, how you can use this chronic illness. God, would you just heal me? I don't know how in the world you can use this, God. And so we're tempted to go, God's not hearing my prayers. He's not answering me. We're tempted to think it's simply impossible for God to take the brokenness of our own sinful choices and to raise us up, and to work good in our lives. 
So we find ourselves in a place of despair and go, wow, the, God, you don't know. Are, are you unaware of the brokenness in my home? I mean, how can you use this? How are my kids going to raise up to, to love you and to worship you and to follow you when there's so much brokenness? And we're tempted to just doubt and turn our back on him and to withdraw. That's the temptation in there, isn't it? You've felt it. You know it. That when you go through a difficult time, the temptation is to withdraw from God and to withdraw from his people, isn't it? That's what we are tempted to do. We want to stay home. We want to sit by ourselves. When all the while God is saying, come to me, come to my people, gather with the people. I've put people around you who love you and care for you. Let them minister to you. So today what we're going to do, we're going to look at Romans 8.28. I want to give you kind of a map of where we're going. The first thing we want to do is we want to ask, who defines good? Who defines good? And then we're going to look at what does good mean? If, if we look at who defines good, and the answer, I'll go ahead and you know, spoil it for you, God defines good. If God defines what is good, then what does that really mean? What does it mean for God to define good? And then we're going to look at some case studies, some examples from Scripture that, are, that really illustrate Romans 8.28 that we need to learn from. And then we'll consider some implications, some application to our lives. So let's ask that first question. We look at Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is, is somewhat of a hinge verse. We've been there a lot and we, we're focused on it. It's somewhat of a hinge verse. If you're there in Romans 8, look at verse 26. It, it's this section, verse, really all of chapter 8, but specifically uh, starting verse 26 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 39. Romans 8.28 kind of serves as a hinge or a bridge connecting these two great truths. The, the truth that the Spirit, in verse 26, helps us in our weakness. When, when we don't know what to pray, we don't know how we're going to go through life, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How can we know that? Because, because we know the truth of Romans 8, 28. That God is working all things together for the good of those who are called and according to His purpose. So we can trust that the Spirit is going to intercede. He's going to help us in our weakness because we know that God is working together all things for our good. Okay, but also it's not just tied back to 826 to 27, but it also looks ahead to what, what Paul's going to say. The rest of the chapter, Paul's building on Romans 828. So he goes on and, and we'll get to uh, in a few weeks the, the, the golden chain in, in Romans 829 and 30. And we, we'll look through that. But he, then he goes into this, he asks a question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And goes into this incredible statement about God's love that is inseparable from us. We cannot be separated from the love of God. Why? Because we know that God is working all things together for the good of his people. Right? Last week, Bill said, why do we know that? We know that because we're his people. Because we're his. We're a people for his own possession. He takes great pleasure and delight in working in our lives. And so because we know that, we know there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So I want to read that passage to you. I want you to hear that in context and think about the, the importance of Romans 8.28 within all that. So we're going to start in verse 26. We're going to read it, and then we'll come back to specifically verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become or to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will able, be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what a beautiful passage. And lying right in the middle of that passage is an incredible truth. The question is, who defines good? Who really defines what is good? Does culture define what good is? Do I define what good is? And if we take a, a brief survey of history and just look through your photo albums, right, and just look at your haircuts, we are thankful that we don't define what is good, right? I mean, some of you guys have mullet mania going on, and some people still think it's great. I don't, obviously, right? Mullets are coming back. Some of you, I don't know if any mullets are here. Praise the Lord if they are. But man, some of the, the haircuts over the 80s are just unreal. We don't define what's good. That's trendy, right? But it, who defines good? God defines what is good. God says this is good, and we know and we trust this when we realize that his definition of good is holy and beautiful. Now, some of you go, why is that important? Why is that comforting? Why should it comfort me that God would define what's good for me? I want to define what's good for me. Some of you say, isn't God just, he, he's just holy and righteous, he's full of wrath, he's judgmental. He calls me to live this way, and I don't want to live that way. Why would it be comforting to me to say that he defines what is good? I want to define what is good in my life, what is best for me, what will work out for my good. Here's the answer to that question. The reason it's good is because God is sovereign, God is wise, and God is good. Guess what? We're none of those things. We're none of those. Are you in control of all things? No. You're not in control of all things. I'm not either. None of us are in control of all things. None of us reign. I like to think that I'm in control of my home. But ultimately, in many ways, I'm not. Things could come in and happen to my home and my family that I can't prevent. 
Am I completely wise? No, I'm not. There's many things that I don't know. There's many things that I don't know what to do about. I daily come before the Lord and say, God, would you please give me wisdom? I need God's wisdom. Am I good? No. We know our thoughts. We know our attitudes, don't we? We know our shortcomings. We know our sins. We know our rebellion, our disobedience. I'm not good. You're not good. But man, we serve the God who is sovereign, who is wise, who is good. Hear this. God is sovereign. Psalm 24. The psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's the Lord's. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's the Lord's. Isaiah 46.10. God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. He doesn't say, I may do. I'm thinking about it. I hope I can do. I wonder if I can do it. I'm really praying I can do it. He says, I will do all that I intend to do, all that I please. My purpose will stand because he is sovereign, he rules, he reigns, he is supreme. Psalm 95.3 says, The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. We don't worship a God who's vying for position, hoping to come above and raise above the breast. We worship the God who is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is exalted above all. He is the great and mighty God. There is no other. He is sovereign and he rules and he reigns. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. Whatever pleases him. I'm not determining what God does. I'm not saying, God, you need to do this. God does whatever pleases him. He's not asking me permission to do what I think he needs to do in my life. Okay? God is sovereign. He reigns. He rules. And I am thankful. Why am I thankful for that? Because God is wise. God is wise. He understands what I don't understand. He knows what I do not know. Job 12, 13. To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. They're his. Romans eleven thirty three. Paul rejoices. He's just gotten through writing about Israel and the Gentiles and salvation and, and God's, God's great plan of grace and mercy and how this works. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depths of it. I, I can't fathom it. I rejoice over it, Paul says. God is sovereign. God is wise. And God is good. God is good, man sovereignty and wisdom of that level would be frightening and terrifying if God was not good. God is good. Psalm 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Golly, God, you see that? God is storing up goodness for you. His goodness is abounding, it's overflowing so much, so he's storing it up for those who fear him. Psalm 34, 8, this is the, the great invitation, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see, come experience, come know the goodness of the Lord. Lamentations 3 that, that Pastor Mike read. Jeremiah goes through lamenting, and then he comes back and he says, but this I know, and this I have hope. What? That God's mercies are new every day, right? God's mercies are new every day. The end of the passage in verse 25, he says, The Lord is good 
to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Listen, if I know that God is sovereign, wise, and good, then I know that whatever comes into my life is there because the sovereign God in His wisdom is working to the ultimate good in my life. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that is a truth that you can build your life upon. That, that gives you confidence that gives you a sure ground to stand on culture does not give you a sure ground your 401k does not give you a sure ground the things that you think you have control of your feeling of control does not give you sure ground but god's sovereignty wisdom and goodness does i know at paramount church rush uh, witt and i were talking about this one time and just about the character of god and they have a thing there where, where they just simply do this you know or this to one another just to remind each other that God is sovereign, wise, and good. That those three things, whatever comes into your life, they go through difficult times. He said it's not uncommon to see someone go through a difficult time or even at a funeral to see one of our church members give another one a hug and just do that. Just as a reminder of encouragement to say, God is sovereign, wise, and good in this situation. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. So what does good mean then? What does good mean? First, it means this, is that we need to understand that God does not operate solely in material goodness. He, he's not confined simply to material things. It's not limited to the things of the world. So his goodness and his good plan in your life, it could include good things. It doesn't mean it's not. It could include good stuff. It, may, it could include good outcomes that we see in this life. But God is not confined. He's not limited just to that. Okay? He's concerned about our ultimate God, our, our ultimate good. So what that means is, is that there, it could be possible. We have to have a category in our mind, an understanding in our mind, that when we lose a job, it could be the fact that, that you know, in that job, I was, I was so comfortable and I had so much that materialism had taken a grip on my life. And God understood that, you know what, I'm going to have to shake that free of you. And I'm going to pull that away. You're going to lose that job. But I'm going to provide for you. And you're going to understand that you are dependent on me. And I'm going to provide your every need. And when you come out of this, maybe it's with a job that you're not earning as much. Maybe it's with a different one. Maybe you like it better. Maybe you struggle through it. But God in his sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness knows that you had to be shook free of that materialism. Is that always the case? No. It could be. It could be an example of that. It could mean that failing to get into the school that you hope for is, is God's sovereign plan, is His working, His providence in your life to humble you or to direct you to a different path. I am so thankful that I did not go and have the opportunity to go to the University of North Carolina. I know you're thankful for that too. But I'm thankful because my wife did not go to the University of North Carolina. She went to the University of North Georgia, where I went. And other things that God did in my life there. I'm thankful that God worked in that way. It doesn't always mean material things. Are we quick 
remember Romans 5, 3 to 4. We're not too, too quick to forget that, are we? What Paul wrote, listen to what he wrote. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. God is, God is more concerned with who we are, not just how nice our life is or the things that we have, how smooth things are. He's concerned for our ultimate good. So first, it means that he is not limited to material things. Second, it means that he is concerned for our ultimate good. And we have to ask that question, what is ultimately good for us? What's, what's good in the whole scheme of our lives? What is good for us? Is it not that we would be restored to who we were intended to be? Is it not that we would be conformed and made into the likeness of Christ? Is it not that we might be sanctified and made more Christ-like, that we would be walking in closer union with him? Is that not ultimate good? That we would step into and walk in and live in the purpose that God has created us to, to live in? That we would be restored and reconciled to him? Is that not our ultimate good? Is it not good for us to then be used to make his name known to the nations? Is that not ultimately good? The thing we learn, we're going to learn and we're going to hear in the coming weeks is that God's grand purpose and our ultimate good is in Romans 8.29. Look ahead one verse where Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his Son. Everything in our lives is working towards us coming and being conformed into the image of Christ. He is the great sculptor, methodically, gradually, faithfully chiseling away the things in our lives to make us more like our Lord, our Savior, our Creator, Christ. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes that he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So you're gathered here, you're a believer, right, believers, then we know that we're gathered here. Why? Because God started a good work in you. He said that what I started was good. You've been through bumps, you've been through valleys and mountaintops, but it is a good work. And the faithful, sovereign, wise, good God will bring it to completion. Through every twist and every turn and every high and every low, he is going to bring that to completion at the day of Christ. He doesn't say he's going to bring it to completion next week. He doesn't say he's going to bring it to completion when you graduate high school or when you're 40 or when you're 60 or when you're 80. He says at the day of Christ. So this means that God's goodness has, has an eschatological weight to it, an end time weight, a day of the Lord weight to it. He, God is not so short-sighted, praise the Lord, that he just wants to work for what we feel good about right now. But he has a long-term goal in mind, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be made like him in the end. That is the ultimate good, even though we don't understand it. It's you Avengers fans, right? It's the scene where Doctor Strange looks at um, Iron Man, says there was only one way. And then all of a sudden everybody's gone. What? There's only one way, it was the end game. God knows what we do not know. God is good in a way we can't fathom. And he rules in an unbelievable way. And we can trust that. And we know that he's moving us in that direction. So let's think about a couple instances in Scripture. What about Joseph? 
What about Joseph? Have you ever considered the life of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50? Have you ever considered what he went through? His brothers sell him into slavery. He goes, winds up in Egypt. He rises to a pretty good position in Potiphar's house, and he's accused of improprieties and sent into prison. Right? He's sent to prison. He's there for multiple years. Finally gets out of prison through interpreting some dreams. Rises to power. Do you know all of this in Joseph's life? You know how many years this was? It wasn't a week. It wasn't a month. It wasn't a year. It was about 22 years from the time he's sold into prison and the time he stands before his family is reconciled to them. 22 years. See, we read that. I read that last night in about 25, 30 minutes. 22 years. Do you think that was easy for Joseph? Do you think Joseph was like, man, this is good. No problems here. I like being in prison. I'm so thankful my brothers sold me into slavery. <laughs> no. I, I, would, I would not hesitate to say that Joseph wept, and there were times where he questioned, and he didn't know, and he didn't understand. God, Joseph wasn't privy of the things we're privy to. I sit down and read Genesis 37, and I'm reading the whole way, knowing what's coming in chapter 50. Joseph doesn't know that. But all throughout there, it says, it repeats, God was with Joseph. God was with him. Listen to to Genesis 50, verse 20. 50, uh, 50, verse 20. Joseph says this at the end of Genesis. He says this to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for, what do you think it says? Good. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph isn't saying, hey, I I just want you to know it, it made me feel good. It was fine for me. He said, no, listen, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And not only did he mean it for good, but he did it so that many people would be alive today. God's plan was bigger than any moment Joseph could imagine. Let's see another one. What about Paul? What about Paul? You've been studying Thessalonians, right? So you know in Acts 16, you have what? You have the, the Macedonian call, right? And so um, if I can get over there, Acts 16. So you have Paul who is they're, they're on their missionary journey and they're, they're thinking they're going one place and, and the Spirit of Jesus comes in and redirects them, right? Uh, it says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go where they had intended to go. So they go on, they go into Macedonia, they go into Philippi, they walk into Philippi and boy, that's a bed of roses, right? No, some of you know and hear what happens. He goes into Philippi and he starts sharing the gospel. What happens in Philippi? He says, hey, this would be fun. Let's drag Paul and his band out into the street. Let's strip them naked. Let's beat them and then throw them in prison. That's great. That was easy. I'm sure Paul was going, wow, this is fun. I like living for the Lord. Anybody else want to come? No. He, he rejoices. He praises the Lord in the midst. Was that easy for Paul? No. What happens? The Philippian church is birthed out of that. The Philippian church is there through that. Listen to what he writes in Philippians. The, the Philippians, the, you guys, this is an interesting thing, right? Paul's dialogue with the Philippians, you look at the letter, you look at the birth of the church, their relationship with Paul is all in the context of prison. 
That's what they know. And so Paul writes in, in verse 12, and he says, I want you to know, he's writing from prison to the Philippians. He writes and he says, listen, I, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it might become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And in fact, he says, verse 14, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's writing to a church that was birthed out of his imprisonment and beating. And he writes to him and says, listen, hey, I'm in prison again. But I want you to know that while I'm here, God is using this to advance the gospel. <laughs> and, and not only so, it's not just me. I'm sitting here. The gospel is being advanced. And brothers around are being just emboldened to speak the word of truth. What about Christ? Is there any better case study than Jesus? I mean, we, we certainly can't do better than that. Acts 2, listen to Acts 2. Men of Israel, this is Peter, he's, he's preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just say, hey, listen to the good things that Jesus did. That's all he did. He was a great teacher. He did great miracles. Everybody liked him. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. There's God's sovereignty and the foreknowledge of God. So God had a plan in this. He brought it about. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Son of God, crucified, beaten, humiliated, killed, buried. But he still doesn't stop, praise the Lord. God raised him up, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Their response is down in verse 37. Let's skip ahead of Peter's sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you, do you see a coincidence, a common theme? In each of these illustrations, there is intense suffering and trials and tribulations that God worked for the good of his people. But guess what? That's not all, is it? The good of his people and who else? Us, others. <laughs> in, in Joseph's life, God intended that for good. Why? So that many people might be saved, might be alive. In Paul's life, he's thrown in a prison. God brings him through that, teaches him more about who he is. The Philippian church is birthed. The people of God are emboldened. Christ, the agony of the cross, for our good. The promise is for us, not just for him or the people of that time, but those who are far off, those who are near. God is not so short-sighted to only work for you and me. He works to carry out his plan among all people. Do you see that this morning? Please see that. 
Romans 8, 28, God's ultimate good is not just for me, but he does things in my life for the advancement of the gospel and for the glory of his name among the nations. I have to realize that my life is not just about me. Reject that lie, church. Please reject that lie that our life is just about us. There is a bigger picture. There is more to your life than you. <laughs> Look beyond yourself. Trust God and see how he can use the trials of your life for his glory. So here's the danger as we close with some implications, application. Here's the danger. Is that you would sit here this morning and you would hear me just saying, you know what, it's no big deal. It's all good. Don't worry about it. The trials that you're going through, the difficulty you're experiencing, the valley you're in, it's all good. Don't worry about it. No. It, it is difficult. It's hard. You're suffering. But what I want you to hear is that in the midst of that, it has meaning. It has purpose. And God is working for your good. So let me give you some implications. Here's the first one. Is that we live with hope. This tells us that we live with hope. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We live with hope. Our hope is in the glory to be revealed from our sovereign and wise God. So no situation of life can steal away God's faithful promise to us. So we live with hope. That's the first implication. Here's the second one. Is that we know that tri the trials we encounter have purpose. The trials that we encounter have purpose. Listen, the suffering that you're in right now, that you've endured, that you've gone through, has meaning. It has meaning. There is a purpose. Please, please know that God is working. What good could possibly come? What good, you ask, what good could possibly come? Maybe the refining of our faith. Maybe the strengthening of our hope. Maybe the opportunity to, de to declare God's grace and mercy to others in the midst of it. Maybe it's the opportunity in the future to be a comfort to others. Second Corinthians 1 talks about that. Perhaps it's God purging sin from my life. Maybe it's teaching me more of who God is. Read the book of Job. Job's eyes are open to God's magnificence and might. Third implication is that we can wait patiently upon the Lord. We can wait patiently upon the Lord. We heard from Pastor Mike, Lamentations 3.26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Psalm 62, I will wait for you. I will wait upon the Lord. Sometimes that's all we can do is wait, is wait upon the Lord. Why? Because we know God is working. What does Paul say? I know, I know. That for those who are God's, he is working for their good. I know that. I'm certain of that. The fourth implication is that we live with peace regarding the future. We live with peace about the future. We, we think about Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul is completely looking forward, right? He's looking down the road and saying, what will separate us? Nothing. What could possibly do that? Nothing. What's coming down the pipe that could get you? Nothing. Nothing separating you from the love of God. Why? Because I know that God's working. There's nothing that comes in tomorrow that can separate us from God's love and His plan. He will do what He pleases. He will carry out His purpose, His plan. 
How does Joseph remain faithful? Because God is with him, right? God's with him. He knows that. He knows it. Let me just give you four tips. These are really quick. You guys are going, four more? Just four things. How do we keep this in mind in the storms of life? How, how do you, like, it's one thing to know it, but what are, how do you do this? How do you do this? Here's some things I've learned. One, memorize scripture. Uh, memorize Romans 8, 28, Philippians 1, 6. Just learn those and allow the Spirit to bring that to mind when you go through difficulty. Memorize Lamentations 3. God's mercies are new every morning. The second thing I would say is find a designated encourager. <laughs> find someone in your life that you can say, listen, I'm going through a difficult time. And I need you to check on me. I need you to spur me on. I need you to encourage me, brother. I need you. Would you please do that? Just find a designated encourager. Third, I would say keep a journal. Write things down. Write how God's working. Write what you're learning. Write your questions. Write your prayers. Cry out to God. God, how long, oh Lord, am I going to go through this? Keep a journal. Keep a record and go back and read it. It's not only helpful for today, it'll be helpful down the road. And then finally, a simple point of application is seek the help of God's people. Don't withdraw. Don't withdraw. Remember God's goodness and run to his good gift of his people. Don't withdraw from us. Run to us and let us come alongside you and help you and embrace you and encourage you. And sometimes when you can't stand, let us hold you and help you stand. Run to his people. Difficult times come. We all know that. But today, may you never forget that you serve a sovereign, a wise, and a good God. Let's pray.